Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I hope that you are reading through the Bible with us. I'm not going to ask how many of you are up to date uh, yet, but you supposedly read through Judges and Ruth this week. Now, when you read through Judges, you see the pattern. People get right with God. They live for him for a while. Next generation comes along. They forget about him. God says, all right then. And they are oppressed or they're taken over. Then, then a judge appears or a savior appears and delivers them. And you see at least seven cycles of that. Well, now when you come to First and Second Samuel, you'll see a transition from the judges to the kings. In fact, First Samuel, you see the last two judges, Eli and Samuel. And you're going to see the first king, Saul. Let me tell you a little bit about these. First and second Samuel, of course, are named after um, Samuel, who is, helps the change happen from uh, the judges to the monarchy, I guess you would call it. His name means asked of God because Hannah, his mom, asked for a child. First Samuel is historical in nature and traces the history of Israel from the birth of Samuel all the way to the death of Saul. This is 1 Samuel we're talking about. 1 Samuel is the first out of three sets of what we call double books. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And th- these three books form a section of the rise and fall of the Israelite monarchy. You're gonna see the, the first king, Saul, and, and then after Solomon, and, the, and there were several other kings, but it all falls apart after Solomon. First and second Samuel were originally one book in the early manuscripts, and they were, it was called the first book of kings. But now we've separated in our English Bible, we have it a little bit different. You can basically break first Samuel into three parts. The first seven chapters are the last of the judges. It talks about Saul, I mean, excuse me, Samuel. The second part, chapters eight through 15, the first of the kings, which is Saul. And then the last part, chapters 16 through 31, 16 through 31 is the greatest of the kings, King David. Second Samuel comes along and records the Jews from Saul's death to the beginning of Solomon's reign, which is so you've got end of Saul, you've got David primarily in 2 Kings, and then the beginning of Solomon's reign. And you can, it gives the history of David. It's going to show his character. It's going to show his reign. It's going to show his failures. It's going to show his troubles. You can break it down into three parts. The first 10 chapters talk about the triumphs of David. By the way, that's where motorcycle ride is mentioned in the Bible. Actually, it was Joshua's triumph was heard throughout the land. And y'all don't even know what a triumph is, do you? It was a motorcycle. Back when I was a kid, the Dead Sea was still sick. The second part is the transgressions of David, chapter 11. And you know about that one. And then the, the troubles of David begin in chapter 12 and go through 24. 
So part three. So part one, part two, and three. The triumphs of David in chapters one through 10. The transgressions in chapter 11. And then the troubles of David in chapter 12 through 24. Where I want to camp today is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, illustration of grace recorded in the Old Testament, in my opinion. And I know my opinion's cheap, but it's still my opinion. We're going to see a picture of salvation. I want to begin reading in chapter 9, 2 Samuel. Now David said, is there still anyone who's left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring him in the harvest, shall bring in the harvest, and that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. There are two pictures here that are both part of grace. The first I call a sketch of man's guilt and separation. When you see Mephibosheth, you see a picture or a sketch of man's guilt and separation. He's a symbol of everyone who's a sinner. And guess what? All of us are sinners, the scripture says. 
Romans 3.23. Yeah, you can leave today and say, that preacher called me a sinner. You're exactly right. Only I didn't call you that. God did. I'm just the messenger. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And here is a picture. And I want you to notice the characteristics of Mephibosheth and how that applies to you and I, you and me as a sinner. First of all, we are fallen in sin. We're disgraced. Now, like Mephibosheth, we're all born into the wrong family. Let me give you a little background here. Obviously, Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul. Saul is no longer king. He's, was, he's dead. He and Jonathan both died in battle. And so Mephibosheth is the grandson. He's, no, he's not part of David's family. And, and you may know that in Eastern times or Eastern monarchs, usually when a new king came, he killed everybody that was left in the other king's family. He didn't want anybody threatening the throne. And so Mephibosheth is not in the right family. Well, we're like him. We've been born into the wrong family. We, we are born into sin. Did you know that? You didn't have to be taught to sin. In fact, did you notice you don't have to teach a baby to sin? Unless they learn it from the parents. No, you don't have to teach a baby to sin. It just comes naturally, doesn't it? They're naturally selfish. They naturally want their way. They're going to try to do everything they can. And you do everything you can to try to keep them alive. Because they're always trying to kill themselves. But you don't have to teach them to sin. The Bible tells something about that. Ephesians 2, 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. It also records that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's one thing that I can tell you about everyone in this room, and there's one thing I can tell you about everybody that's watching online, and one thing I can tell you about everyone who sees this on television, we're all sinners, and we were born into the wrong family. We're separated from God. We were born with a sinful nature. You ever told a lie? Don't say no, you just lied if you did. <laughs> maybe you've stolen something, maybe you've cheated, maybe you've hurt somebody, maybe you've disobeyed your parents. In other words, we're born into the wrong family. Mephibosheth was the descendant of King Saul. And King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 23, God rejected him as a king. He said, you're no longer in, in the good graces. In fact, Saul had done so many bad things and turned his back on God and all kinds of things that he'd pretty much been rejected. And that here was a family that was in power and now is in disfavor with God and with man. Another thing you can say about Mephibosheth, along with this same fallen in sin, is that he was crippled by a fall. Now, how did he get that way? Well, you can read in 2 Samuel chapter 4, you're going to find out when the news came to Mephibosheth was five years old. And Saul and Jonathan died in a battle. Well, the news came to the nursemaid and the nursemaid grabbed him and ran out of the house. And we don't know how it happened, but she dropped him. She, I don't know if he fell down the stairs. I don't, we don't know. But we do know as a result of that, he was crippled or lame the rest of his life. 
It's kind of sad when you see, think of a healthy little boy who somehow is dropped and now crippled for the rest of his life. But the same is true of us. Because in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were in power. Not, not over God, but they were, had dominion over the earth. And God said, it's all yours except don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they ate of that tree and separated themselves from God. And what do we call that, chapter 3? We call it the fall of man, don't we? Because we fell out of favor. We separated ourselves from God. And guess what? You are born into that family The Bible says, in Adam, all of us die, but in Christ, all are made alive. So we're all spiritually lame. We can't naturally walk with God because we're separated from him because of our sin. And we're like Mephibosheth. We're literally, his name means a shameful thing, by the way. And, And so that shows you the the detriment or the, uh, the desperate condition that he was in, we're in the same kind of boat. We're fallen in sin. We're disgraced. We are separated from God. We're in the wrong family. We've been crippled spiritually. Another thing, not only was he fallen in sin, but he was far from God. David asked, where is he? And Ziba, who was a servant of Saul at one time, said, he's in Lodabar. Y'all know where that is? Neither did anybody else. (laughs) Lodabar was an obscure village quite far north of Jerusalem and across on the other side of the river, the Jordan River. He was living in obscurity. And Lodabar literally means a place with no pasture. He was living in a place where you couldn't grow grass. Sounds like my yard. You couldn't grow crops or fruit. You might say that Mephibosheth was living on the backside of the desert in the middle of nowhere. He's a nobody going nowhere in a hurry. And why was he living there? Because he was far from the king. He was afraid of the king. So he stayed as far away from the fruitfulness and the food and the riches of King David as he could. He got as far away and lived in obscurity. And guess what? David, the king, wanted to have fellowship with him. How many people do we know? How many people in this world today are running destitute away from God. And God is wanting to see them. A lot of people are afraid of God. They're helpless, they're hopeless, they're completely without power. The human condition, you can sum it up in Ephesians 2.12, it says that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We have people all around us who are so far from God. In fact, they just want to take God out of everything and you wonder why we're in such a mess today. Because when you take God out of it and when you run from God and you, you get as far away from God, then you're left to your own reprobate self. And it's incredible 
how evil our hearts can be. One other thing that describes them, he was fearful of God. He was living in fear. We know what that's like, don't we? We've been reminded of it. There are a lot of people living in fear today. They're afraid. Can you imagine what Mephibosheth must have thought when the king's messengers knocked on his door? Come with us. King David wants to see you. Now we get a little picture of that when you look in verses six and seven when you find that when he is brought before David, he probably thought he was going to be executed because the first thing David said was, don't be afraid. Fear is the response of any sinner who's aware of his sin before a holy God. I can remember growing up across the street from the church. My dad was the pastor at Westside Baptist Church in El Dorado and the parsonage was across the street and we had to go over there. You know, I always kidded people, you know, we were not only there when the doors were open, we were there when the doors were closed because we had the keys. But dad would send me over there to do something, fill up Coke machine or whatever down in the fellowship hall or whatever. You know, and I got to where I could run through that building in the dark. It was especially fun when the GAs had a sleepover because I could run through there and scare the Holy Spirit out of them. <laughs> Not the Holy Spirit out of them, but the Holy Spirit in them. But, but there was one place that I, I didn't mind walking anywhere in that building and it was three stories tall and, you know, knew all the stuff. But it was always a little unnerving to me to go into the auditorium in the dark or the worship center because that's where God lived. And I could just imagine, you've seen that scene of that old movie, uh, Close Encounters, when the light shines down on me. That's what I pictured God going boom on me and going, calling me by name and me dying right there on the spot. Why? Because of sin. You think, if I stand before a holy God, I'll be, I'll be killed on the spot. There's a fear. Fear is the response of anyone who realizes their sin before a holy God. Today, if we're not careful, we, pitch, we picture God as such a syrupy, sweet old man that nobody's afraid of him. And that's not that we have to be fearful of him, but I want to tell you something. If you fall into the hands of God without Jesus Christ, you need to be afraid. You do. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you, you got no hope. If you don't know Jesus Christ, there's a lot to be afraid of when you come into the presence of God. But I got some great news for you. Hang on just a second. You know, in 1981, California police staged a, an intensive search for a stolen car and its driver. And they were, they were even putting announcements on the radio trying to get attention of the thief. Because on the front seat of that car was a box of crackers that had been laced with rat poison. The thief didn't know that, but they were afraid if this man ate those crackers, he was going to die. So you've got the police and the owner more interested in apprehending the thief to save his life than to get the car back. Well, 
Like that thief, many people are running from God thinking that all he's after is to punish them and for the wrongs they have done. But when God is actually trying to get their attention and saying, I don't want you to go into eternity without me. I've paid the price. The penalty of sin is death. Jesus died for you. It's paid for. And now you don't have to be afraid. But they run from God thinking that all he's after to do is to get them. I've actually seen people wear a t-shirt that said, God's going to get you for that. No, God's trying to keep you from getting that. He's trying to save your life. They were afraid of God. And Mephibosheth is a sketch of our guilt and our separation. That's what all people without Jesus look like. You may know them. You may work with them. You go to school with them. But without Jesus Christ... They have no hope. But now let's look at the snapshot of God's grace and salvation. Let's look at King David for a moment. Let's turn this picture around because I want you to see how great this is. How amazing this is. How good it is. And if, if, if you'd like to throw in an amen every now and then, it would help my feelings. I'm so sensitive, you know. <laughs> you know what we need? To, I need to laugh a little bit too. So I'm going to laugh at you. And you can laugh at me. And we'll just laugh together. I want you to notice several things. First of all, notice what I'm going to call the approach of God. He seeks us. Let's go back when in verse one it says, is there anyone who's left? Is there anyone that's left? Now, did you notice he didn't say, is there anyone qualified that's left? Is there anyone worthy that's left? He just says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? And Ziba comes up there and you can almost hear in Ziba's voice because what does he say? Well, there is one, uh, the son of Jonathan, but he's crippled. David didn't say how badly crippled is he? He didn't think, well, we'll forget him. He'll be useless around here. No, he didn't say any of that. Instead, what did he say? Where is he? Where is he? God came to the garden after Adam and Eve sinned. He said, where are you? Where are you? If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. Grace does not depend on the person receiving it. You're never worthy to get grace. If you were worthy, it wouldn't be grace. You don't earn it. Grace is never dependent on the recipient. Grace from God is unmerited. David sought out Mephibosheth. This, land, this lame man didn't deserve anything. He didn't fill out an application for an opening at the palace. David came looking for him. In fact, he was hiding. He was hiding because he knew or was probably told. And by the way, David had been on the throne 20 years here. So Mephibosheth's got to be in his 20s if he was five when David became king and he's been 20 years, so do the math. He's in his mid-20s. He'd been hiding all this time and David finally finds him. You see, the sheep never seeks the shepherd. The shepherd seeks the sheep. 
God came looking for you. Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, I found God. Well, I understand what they're saying and I'm not being critical, but that's not accurate because God found you and you responded to him. God found you. And the people are running through their life. I've gone all through my life and I finally found God. No, God's put all of these obstacles in here to get your attention. He's put the Bible and the church and Christian people and praying family members to try to keep you. But he got your attention and you responded to God. But God came seeking you. And not only did David sin to find out where Mephibosheth was, he had him brought, verse 5, brought him from Lodabar from the house of Machir of Amiel. His son was Machir. No, no, I take that back. His son is Mika. Machir is the son of Amiel. Somewhere he was hiding out, but I can imagine when, when he answered the door, Mephibosheth probably thought, they, they're going to make me crawl all the way to Jerusalem because he can't walk. But now I'm going to use my sanctified imagination here, which means this isn't in the Bible, okay? But instead of making him crawl to Jerusalem, can you imagine him coming out and seeing this gleaming chariot decked out with cushioned seats, umbrella, snacks? <laughs> I don't know. We just know that he was treated well. And brought to David. Mephibosheth was probably hadn't been treated like that since he was a kid. He was a king's son. Surely, surely David must know that I don't have anything to offer except lame legs, but the king is accepting him just the way he is. Let me remind you, that's how you come to God, just the way you are. But not only does David approach Mephibosheth, God approaches you and me. God accepts you and me. He saves us. He seeks us. Then he saves us. You see the acceptance of God. It's been 20 years since David became king and Mephibosheth's been hiding. And this, that knock at the door probably scared him to death. And upon hearing David's gesture of grace, when he was brought into David's presence, you'll notice in verse eight, he hears his name. David says, are you Mephibosheth? And he said, it's, it is here, your servant. But then notice what he says in verse eight. He bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog as I? He called himself a dead dog. Now, I want you to know that is the nastiest, foulest thing he could think of. For a Jew, it was a double wham. To them, a dog was the most repulsive animal imaginable, not like those darlings you have at home. <laughs> to a Jew, the dog was the worst as it got. It was a scavenger. If you called somebody a dog, that was as bad as it got. But then he adds dead on top of it. And everything that was dead was vile and unclean. And he thought of himself as a pile of garbage, a man of shame. And he reveals his astonishment here at the grace that's being shown to him. Why would you have somebody as vile as me? 
And David says to him in verse seven, do not fear for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. See, David and Jonathan made a covenant. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 20. Don't miss it while you're reading it. Verses 13 to 17. And Mephibosheth found that he was accepted by David because of David's beloved relationship with Jonathan. A covenant that they'd made many years before. And God the Father made a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus came and died for our sins. For his sake, he shows us kindness. Ephesians 1 5 says that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. God accepts us because of his son Jesus Christ who died for our sin. It was God's idea and God's plan. Jesus fulfilled it. Many years ago in Peru, Shah Abbas reigned and he deeply loved his people and many times he would disguise himself and go out among the people so that he would know their needs and would mingle with them and understand them better. And one day he dressed up as a poor man and went to the public baths where there was a man who always tended the furnace. It was a common man and he talked with him and shared his food and in weeks that followed, he returned often, and that man in that public bath who tended the furnace grew to love him as a dear friend. And then one day, the Shaw identified himself, revealed his identity. But the man just sat there. The Shaw was expecting him to ask for some expensive gift. But the man just sat there in awe. And finally, he said, you left your palace and your glory to sit with me in this humble place to partake of my common food, to care for me, to care about me. And on others, you may bestow great riches, but to me, you have given a much greater gift, yourself. Please, your majesty, never withdraw the priceless gift of your friendship. God wants to have a relationship with us. He loves you. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. He wants you. Here's a crippled, an outcast, a dead dog, a man of shame. And David never said any of those words. In fact, he said, where is this son of Jonathan? I wonder how long it had been since Mephibosheth heard that word, son. But when he said, don't be afraid, David's first words were, don't be afraid, because naturally Mephibosheth was afraid. He was terrified. Folks, I got some great news for you. Did you know that the most common repeated command of the Lord Jesus is, don't be afraid. And did you know that in every book of God's word, every last one of them is the phrase, or not the phrase, but, but the command from God to not be afraid. So when we come to God, we don't have to be afraid. What a beautiful picture of the way God relates to us. He comes to us when we're dirty. And he doesn't demand that we clean ourselves up before we come. No, he takes us home and cleans us up. We come, we're all messed up, but he didn't wait till we get our act together. He brings us home and he gets our act together. 
Tony Campolo tells the true story of a time when he was in an airport and he was waiting and he saw this beautiful little girl dressed up and she kept saying, I'm going to see my daddy. I'm going to see my daddy. And she was happy. She got on the plane and Campolo was on the plane and she was happy until motion sickness set in. And that motion sickness got all over her and you know what I mean. Well, Campolo said he wanted to watch to see what happened and he waited to watch for the reunion. And when the father saw his little girl, he didn't see all that stuff on her. He just grabbed hold of her and embraced her. And did you know when God sees you and me, he doesn't see all this stuff on us. He loves us. He accepts us by his grace. You're not accepted because you deserve it. You're not accepted because of your skin color or your economic status or your education. You're accepted because God accepts you. <laughs> he's approached, he's accepted, he's adopted. God satisfies us. I tried while I was reading this passage to emphasize it. Did you hear the four times that I read where it says he will eat at the king's table? Can you imagine what must have been like for Mephibosheth? He was a lame man living in Lodabar where the most exciting thing to do was sit around and watch tumbleweeds roll. And now he's brought to the capital city of Jerusalem where he eats all his meals at the king's table. Even so, God called him into, has called us into fellowship. He, he said, I want a relationship with you. I know you. I know your name. I know where you've been, but I love you. And his grace has brought us into communion with him daily where we can go to God through Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father. But to me, the most telling way it is used is in verse 11, where it says, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth, my home is your home. My family is your family. You don't just visit here, now you live here. You're part of the family. And it's all because of David's grace to him. We're part of the family because of God's grace to you and me. There's an old story. I don't know who wrote it. I'm going to read it. It's called Come to the Table. It goes like this. I shook my head in disbelief. This couldn't be the right place. After all, I couldn't possibly be welcomed here. I glanced down at the invitation and there it was. Come as you are, no jacket required. I went to the address and there was this beautiful house. I looked through the window. I saw a room of people whose faces were alight and, and with joy. They were neatly dressed, adorned in the finest clothes. They appeared to be as clean as the driven snow. And then I looked down at my own tattered, torn clothing covered in stains and I was dirtier than my clothes were. I even smelled bad. I don't belong here, but the words of the invitation jumped out at me, come as you are. So I decided to give it a shot and mustering up every bit of courage I could, I opened the door to this beautiful restaurant, walked up to a man standing behind a podium and he said, your name? And I said, James Black. I couldn't even look him in the eye. I was so ashamed of my appearance, but 
He didn't seem to notice the filth I was covered in. He said, oh yes, there's a table for you and a seat with your name on it. For me? He led me to a table and sure enough, there was a beautiful place card with my name written on it in deep, dark red. I looked over the menu. I couldn't believe what they were serving. Things like peace and joy and love and mercy and blessings. I quickly realized this was no ordinary restaurant. I flipped the menu back to the front of the order to see what the name of the restaurant was. It was called God's Grace. The waiter returned and said, may I recommend the special of the day? You can accept it and everything you have read on the menu is yours and you can have it as much as you want. And I said, of course, what is the special of the day? He said, salvation. I practically screamed out, I'll take it. Then I snapped back to reality. Tears filled my eyes and I said, mister, I'm sorry. You can see I'm dirty and nasty and unclean and unworthy. I'm completely broke and broken. I'd love to have all of this, but I can't afford it. The man smiled again and said, sir, your check has already been taken care of, but that gentleman over there, as he pointed to a man in the front of the room, he said, his name is Jesus. I immediately ran over to this man and fell at his feet, and I said, sir, I'll wash the dishes, sweep the floor, take out the trash. You just name it, and whatever I can do to repay you for all of this, I will do. He brought me to my feet and said, son, all of this is yours just for coming to me. You don't need to clean up. I'm going to clean you up. You don't need to pay for the food. It's already been bought. You don't need to buy any clothes. I've already picked out your outfit. All you've got to do is accept what I want to give you. Then he said something to me I will never forget. He said, you are not just a customer at my restaurant. You're now part of my family. What I have is yours. You can come and go as you like. And the same is true for those of us who have come to Jesus Christ by faith. We have experienced God's grace. You know what he's given us? He's given us security, John 6, 37. He's given us a home in heaven, John 14, 1. We're promised our needs will be met, Philippians 4, 19. We're promised that we have his presence until we go home to heaven, Matthew 28, 20. This grace that he gives us is so amazing. One last illustration and I'm finished. Charles Stanley wrote this. You've heard of him, haven't you? One of my more memorable seminary professors had a practical way of illustrating to his students the concept of grace. At the end of his evangelism course, he would distribute the exam with the caution or the instructions to read it all the way through before beginning to answer it. The caution was written on the exam as well. Read it all the way through before you begin to answer it. As we read the test, it became unquestionably clear to each of us we had not studied nearly enough. The further we read, the worse it became. And about halfway through, audible groans could be heard through the lecture hall. On the last page, however, was a note that read, you have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given or sign your name at the bottom and in so doing receive an A for the assignment. What? We sat there stunned. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A? And slowly the point dawned on us and one by one we turned in our test and silently filed out of the room. When I talked with the professor about it afterward, he shared some of the reactions he had received through the years. 
Some students began to take the exam without reading it all the way through. They would sweat it out for the entire two hours of class before reaching the last page. Others read the first two pages, became angry, turned the test in blank and stormed out of the room without signing it. They never realized that what was available and as a result, they lost out totally. One fellow, however, read the entire test, including the note at the end, but decided to take the exam anyway. He did not want any gifts. He wanted to earn his grade, and he did. He made a C plus when he easily could have gotten an A. That's the mindset of a lot of people. They believe they can work hard enough to gain their salvation. Oh, I'll get there. If I have more good, it outweighs the bad. I'll get there. They believe they can live a good enough life to get, make it to heaven, but folks, it's impossible. It's, you can't do it. But the good news is it's already been paid. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.